Are you ready? Because it's time to go lead everything. Views and opinions expressed during the show are not necessarily those of TC Energy or its management. What is going on, everybody? Welcome to the Go Lead Everything podcast. Man, I'm absolutely thrilled today to have a special guest. I get the pleasure of speaking with a gentleman for which I have the utmost respect and admiration. This individual has built his reputation in the natural gas pipeline business as a man of strong integrity, high kindness, respect, and outstanding expertise in gas compression. He has served on the Gas Machinery Conference Planning Committee since 2007 as a chairman of the GMC in Nashville in 2014, and I think that was a record year for attendance. And he is currently serving as chairman of the Eastern Gas Compression Roundtable has served as a conference resource there since 1987, and he has also served on the Compressor and Pump Committee of the Pipeline Research Council International since 2010, and on the Kansas State University NGML Advisory Board since 2016, and I am thrilled to have Keith Schaefer on the Go Lead Everything podcast with me today. Hey, Keith, welcome to the show. Thank you, Philip. You're way too kind. <laughs> I appreciate you, sir. Glad you could take some time. And you have an absolutely amazing story that as a second generation pipeliner, I think the world needs to hear. So talk a little bit about how you got into the pipeline industry and, and your family's history in the pipeline industry. Well, I grew up on the, basically on the pipeline with my dad. Uh, he was a pipeline foreman and all my years growing up from the time we was early teenagers, we was out on the I mean, there wasn't as many restrictions of doing things like that back then. And uh, we was, me and my brother spent a lot of time with my dad. He'd be out on the right of way laying new pipeline and, and seeing that process. And back then, the huge backhoes and bulldozers grading the right of ways and, and uh, laying the pipe was just amazing to me. And uh, we saw that, especially through the summertime, a lot. We spent a lot of the summer with dad even uh, like say in early teenage years. And all I ever wanted to do was work on the pipeline and work for the gas company. And I didn't know my grandfather very well. He died when I was very young, but uh, he started in that gas company back in 1919 when he came home from uh, World War One, And uh, he was one of the first pioneers of, of the gas business. He worked 41 years, retired in 1961 and died that year also so uh, oh, wow. he uh, didn't live long after he retired my dad uh, like i said i grew up with him all i ever known about the gas company was pipeline laying pipe and taking care of right of ways and, and things of that sort and that's all i ever wanted to do even going through high school i thought well I took college prep classes in school because that's what my friends did so i was taking college prep classes but I knew as soon as I would get, I got a chance, I was going to work for the gas company. And I turned 18 when I got out of the uh, 11th grade. Then that summer, I worked summer help at the warehouse, painting and mowing and doing things like that around the yard. And then when I graduated high school, I spent three months working for that another summer. And that summer, I got to work on the pipeline. I was running skids and doping pipe and and doing basically grunt work, but I loved that. Yeah. And uh, it was stuff that is very interesting to me. That time ran out as far as the summer help. 
I put in different applications and different facilities and places around the gas company. Of course, nothing came up, but I went to work right away. As soon as that job was over, I went to work for a printing company in locally in Huntington, West Virginia. And I started out there. I quit my job on Friday at the gas company and started Saturday at the printing company and started out dumping garbage to delivering packages in the area. Worked run a delivery truck for a while. Then within six months, I was running a printing press. Oh, wow. For six months, I, then I worked ran a printing press from three, three in the evening to three in the morning. Oh. And so another shift changed. So that was one terrible shift. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> it, it uh, like I said, I was, I was young and, and I didn't mind it too bad. But uh, then when uh, I got a call, for an interview for a compressor station job that came open. And I said, okay, it'll get my foot in the door because I want to be on the pipeline. That's all, I, don't, I know nothing about compressor station. <laughs> and uh, so I took the interview and quit that job on a Thursday and started the following Monday uh, at the gas company in April, April 4th, 1977. Started in as a utility. It's, Basically, does everything that nobody else wants to do. A lot of that early on was uh, covering for operations. We had an assistant operator and an operator that worked around the clock. So we had four shifts going, midnight, day, evening, and, and a swing shift crew that had eight people rotating all the time. And when I started at that facility, there was, I think, 18 people and... I think 12 of them had five weeks vacation. They were full of them, so they were all older, older gentlemen. And uh, so I was doing fill-in work all the time, working operations for a couple of years. And then uh, after a couple of years of, of working operations, a repairman job came open, and that's when I took that position and actually doing the repair work. We had eight reciprocating engines at that facility for two cycle or four, four cycle units. And so I got a lot of experience doing all the maintenance, repair, upgrades, everything we did to them, we did ourselves back then. Even even reground jobs back then, we did, did them ourselves with the jackhammer and, and pouring the concrete and everything ourselves. Got a lot of experience. And during that time, we was one of the larger stations in our fleet. We had an equipment analyzer there. Each month, the senior man on the repair crew would get an opportunity to be upgraded to run the engine analyzer. And a couple of the guys didn't want to do that. They just more work for them. They didn't want to do it. So I, I got drafted early on to do that. So I got a lot of experience running the engine analyzer at the facility. And then in 1987, we had approximately 100 compressor stations in our fleet. And uh, we picked 10 equipment analysts to cover those 100 stations. So each one of us had eight or 10 stations apiece. We just constantly go from one location to another, analyzing equipment and writing reports and seeing a lot of different type of equipment than I had before. So it's very interesting. Every day was a new challenge. Yeah, before we go on, I, I picked up a couple of really cool things. One, 
the grunt work you had to do and, and then doing those jobs that nobody else likes to do. I, I think there's something to that. I, I'm curious your perspective. Do you think you earned a lot of respect from your colleagues for spending that time doing some of that really tough, challenging grunt work that nobody else wanted to do? I think I have, but more lately, you know, a lot of the people that I worked with back then are all retired or, or gone now. But when I'm talking to somebody that maybe they never even met before, mm-hmm. just when they, they feel you out, they know that they can feel what experience you've done firsthand versus what you've read about. Right. And, and I feel a lot of people see that it's not what I just read in a book somewhere. We've actually done that. Right. And it, I think that helps quite a bit with the job that I've had anyway. That's one piece of advice I tell any young engineer who has an opportunity or, or any young employee who wants to get into this or any industry, getting that hands-on experience is just so important to really mm-hmm. understand. And, and you, like you mentioned, you, you know when somebody doesn't have it, especially if you've <laughs> yeah. got it. Exactly. You know, so uh, yeah. the other thing, before we get too much further, what is a reciprocating engine for people who may have no clue what we're talking about? Basically a car engine. The engines that we deal with, range anywhere from 500 to 12,000 horsepower reciprocating means the pistons are going up and down either in a V shape or in an inline pattern and grow from a two cylinder engine to a 20 cylinder engine. And they drive compressors, reciprocating compressors, or we have centrifugal compressors. So we either move the gas down the pipeline by, we bring gas in one station, and just basically raise the pressure and put it down the pipeline. And uh, the, the compressors compress the gas, uh, suction pressure to discharge pressure and move it 90 to 100 miles where another station would take it and, and do the same thing. So we move it all over the country by increasing the pressure at each location. Centrifugal compressors it works, there's different applications for different type of units. So. We, we use a centrifugal compressor where we have a high volume, low differential gas, where a reciprocating compressor can work with a very wide spread through many stages, a lower volume usually. Sure. So going back to that analyst program, you just established that analyst program and you had an opportunity to really be an integral part of the beginning of that. Very educational for me, growing in all different aspects. They picked 10 of us. And we had 10 identical minivans that looked the same. Uh, we had uh, all the equipment, we bought equipment, and, and we had a wide range of experience because a lot of the analysts that we picked for the job were good mechanics, but had never run an analyzer, where some had a little bit of experience, and, but a lot of them didn't. So we went through a pretty regular training program to get everybody up to speed uh, on the basics. And a lot of our engines had never had an engine analyzer hooked up. So part of the growing of that was getting the engine set up to analyze, finding our top bed centers, finding all the marks on the flywheel and making our own, installing brackets to put magnetic pickups to, to see where your firing pressures was going to be in your valve events and your compressor head in and crank in. If you didn't have those references and, all that data from your OEM, your V angles, and all the data from your engine, 
the analyzer would have told you nothing. I've uh, been very sketchy, but when you set up your engines that way to put all that data into your analyzer, which is now put in your computer, it kind of opens it up where when you hook up to that engine with your equipment, you can see everything going on real time. Pressures, ultrasonics, vibrations, everything will shows up. You can really pinpoint exactly what is going on with that engine. Is that this power cylinder operating and performing like it should, or is something wrong? You check your efficiencies of horsepowers and flows. You may see numerous thousands of different things that can be going wrong. Some in the very early stages, and some you look at and say, this thing's broke. Why is it running? So, uh, I saw you make a comment on LinkedIn the other day. There was a, a di- it was like an automation uh, cartoon of a, I think it was supposed to be a two stroke and it had, mm-hmm. or, uh, it had, it had like, uh, valves and, and ports or it had valves instead of ports and, uh, it was firing on every cycle <laughs> and you were like, dang, that's <laughs> the, that's the best darn four stroke I ever saw. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And but it's one of those things that, you know, someone with your expertise has been on those engines that's had that analyzer in their hands for that many hours, you know, you, you just, naturally see things instantly and, and folks who haven't been around it would never see i looked at that and and i didn't i didn't comment for some time and i just waiting for somebody to say something i finally had to <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, thought was, I thought it was so funny i would never like if i'd have dug in and really analyzed it i might have picked up on that but you know just glancing <laughs> at it you know i didn't even pick up on it i said is this a two-stroke or a four-stroke <laughs> they really don't fit either one <laughs> right right <laughs> So other than your technical experience kind of growing through, is there one person or piece of advice through that time in your career that really kind of rung with you that kind of helped set you on a path to where you are today? I've got probably three or four men in my life that has really set groundwork for everything I've got or done uh, the way I look at it. Uh, of course, my dad being the first, great work ethic. Dad was God, country, family down the line, and uh, he lived it. Sometimes uh, I've probably done like him more times than we should is put company in there before family lots of times. Sometimes it it uh, it hurts you that way, but uh, yeah, I mean that's that has happened many many times or seemed like the company has, has got ahead of your family and, and you got to keep perspective of that. Everybody does. When I became a team leader later on, then that was one of the things I kept expressing to the guys that work for me. I got to take the time off, go with your family. And if you can come home that night instead of spending the night in a hotel, if that, that works better for you, do that. So probably work things that way. Talk a little bit more about that. That you know, make sure you're taking time for you. Make sure you're staying mentally healthy. Safety culture. One of the things when I became team lead and manager, that that kind of stuck to me more than anything, because I saw two different times where my dad had to go to a man's wife and tell him he wasn't coming home. And one of them was a heart attack. Another one was an accident at work. And and when I, 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 I feared that on a daily basis when I had people working for me, 
that would I have to do that? And it really makes you think that anything you can do to to press these guys to be safe and and just watch out for others, uh, other unsafe people. Uh, you see them all the time on the highway. To uh, to take the time to do that. That's such good perspective, I think, for the average Joe who may not have any experience with the energy industry. You know, may. Maybe he's even a little bit critical of the energy industry for environmental reasons or, or what have you. But I think it's so amazing to hear your stories, hear stories like, like your, your dad had to go through going to somebody who lost their life in the process of trying to keep gas flowing down the line so people can have, you know, energy to flick their light on or heat their home or whatever right. they're doing. I mean, it, the, the sacrifice that so many people have made countless hours staying away from their families so that everybody can have comfortable lives with plentiful, reliable energy. It's just incredible. And yeah, there's other sources and there's other applications and, and you know, I'm all for having a good energy mix in order to live our lifestyle. It takes a lot of people doing a lot of amazing things. It does. It's incredible. Uh, um, I see it right here where I'm, I live right now. I'm kind of more out in the country and my neighbors is originally from the Cleveland area and, never seen anything like power outages and water outages what what's what's this all about and and we're, we have some old old systems out here and the power goes out and he's fussing and carrying all, all the time and of course nobody likes the inconvenience of it i, I went and bought me a generator so i don't have that but i know what's behind that when we lose power or lose water you got to call a crew out and they're coming out there on the holidays and weekends and middle of the night in extreme weather to try to get you conveniences that you want. It's usually not emergencies, but conveniences. Mm -hmm. It's amazing what all it takes to make all those pegs fit in the hole. There's nothing that gives you perspective on how good you have it, like a power outage. Yeah. You know, everything shuts down and you're like, man, this would, this would stink if this exactly. lasted very long. You exactly. know? So switching gears, we were picking each other's brain about this a while back, but I know you're a metal fan. I was telling you, I went to a Slipknot concert back in the day, at the Palace of Auburn Hills back in the day. What's your favorite memory of being at a metal concert? Oh gosh. I got I got a bunch of them and some of them some really foggy memories from back in the day. <laughs> what I've really enjoyed uh, lately is my wife has experienced very little rock concerts or anything concerts at all and when we got married six years ago a lot of the bands that I enjoyed when I was 18 to 25 range was having their 40th anniversary so we've got to see a lot of of bands that I saw 40 years ago together. Oh, wow. So, so uh, Rush is a big one that, that I, I was and still am a big fan. Uh, of course, seen several KISS concerts, and I took her to KISS uh, down in Charlotte last year, uh, the concert there. And then wow. the guys are still rocking <laughs> like they did back then. Oh, they are, man. They are, for sure. I took her to... Uh, Ozzy Osbourne Cosbert uh, in, in Columbus here uh, a couple of years ago and saw Black Sabbath back in the day. It's a little more intense than you remember it being, or is it the same as it was back then? Uh, pretty much the same. It's pretty much the same. 
it's amazing how close they are. I mean, you see Hart and Fleetwood Mac, uh, Stevie Nicks, those that have been doing this 40 and 50 years, and, yeah, they're not getting the, the high pitches like they did, and they're not extending things out, but they're still rocking. And uh keep saying when I get that old, but I'm not too far from it. <laughs> it's pretty cool, man. I had a roommate in college. He's actually the one that introduced me to metal music, and, and we went to that Slipknot concert back in the day. Oh, yeah. Trivium and Coheed and Cambria opening up, and – that was my first concert like that, and it was crazy, absolute craziness. <laughs> I don't know if I'd do that again, but um, it was fun. You know, it's a fun memory. Yeah, yeah most, most of my rock concert, or I'd say rock but concerts I went to was uh, Southern Rock, but mm. uh, I haven't seen some of the harder ones, but Southern Rock has probably been most of my go-tos that I went to. We, I took Laura to uh, the last one we went to was ZZ Top. Oh, sure. yeah. I've seen the ZZ Top. They rock. Yeah, they, they're great. I've, I've seen them about, about four or five times over the years, and they're still, they still got it. They That's still awesome, got it. man. Awesome. What advice would you have? We got all these millennials coming up. Some are going into energy, thinking about going into energy. You know, young engineers, young technicians coming through the ranks. What advice do you have for the younger generations that are just kind of getting to the energy industry it's not going away this country is uses a lots of energy and the more things we invent and come up with and homes we build and businesses we build they need the energy and it doesn't grow on trees and when people if anybody just puts it in perspective of what it takes to run a building of energy or run a facility and look at, okay, okay, just put in a windmill. Okay, that windmill is 1.5 megawatts. Well, I move up to, okay, I got one natural gas turbine facility that's 500 megawatts. Six turbines, 500 megawatts. So I, you're telling me I need 300 windmills to make the same power as that one gas-powered plant? But now, I say, now that one gas power plant, I need uh, uh, probably five of those to make one coal power plant or steam turbine plant. That's 2,000 megawatts. So I need 2,000 to 3,000 windmills to make that. Where am I going to put all that? And look at the man hours taking care of one facility versus 300. And, yeah, and, and how are you going to expect to get that at any sort of reasonable cost to yeah, the consumer? The, the, the big, big thing with windmills was uh, now we're upgrading to almost two megawatts on a windmill. Woohoo! Yeah, that, that, that's good if you're running one building, but if you're supplying the uh, eastern part of the country, it, it's going to be unbelievable how many of those you would need to do that. And it's just not feasible. And it only and it only <laughs> is going to give you the power when it's windy. And if it is, yeah, the wind's got to blow to make it happen. And then look at the man hour maintenance it takes to maintain those. There's going to be, they say they're going to hire a lot of people. Well, they have to to maintain that. And the life expectancy of a windmill twenty years. And now we can't re, re uh, it can't be reconditioned or remodeled. It can't even be destroyed. They're burying them 
in landfills because there's nowhere to put this stuff and you can't do anything with the fiberglass blades. They're, so, yeah, they can talk that, but when reality, it's just not there. It may come, somebody may get smart and figure out a better way to do it, do all this, and it's happened, but to a point, but it's not taking the place of coal or natural gas. Nuclear is the way to go if you want a lot of power in a single facility, but everybody is so against the nuclear side right now. So if you don't have a fossil fuel, you're not, you don't have anything to replace that with right now. They, they can talk about wind and power and, and uh, uh, water, but it's just not there yet. And it's going to be years before it gets to the point of replacing natural gas. We've worked miracles, I think, of reducing our carbon footprints by switching natural gas from coal to natural gas on power facilities. We've done extremely well. The shell funds that we've had over the last 10, 15 years has been unbelievable to the natural gas business. And to say we're not going to utilize that would be just a disaster. We got it available all over the company. We're, we're, we're making it available to the world through LNG transports. And, and it's just amazing what this industry has. It's always been ups and downs with the fossil fuel business, but I don't see how it's going to be replaced anytime soon with uh, anything. Yeah, I agree with you. I, it's exciting to think of being in the natural gas industry just with the opportunity for natural gas to be a huge step forward in this carbon footprint conversation that we've been having and reducing that. I know just switching to natural gas as much as we have over the last couple of decades has been a huge transition to, uh, to help that. I was going to ask you about nuclear too. You, you kind of hit on it a little bit. What do you think is the main uh, holdup other than just the, I guess, perception around nuclear? I just, I feel like there's so many good opportunities with nuclear. I think it can be done so safely these if, days. If, if it had another word rather than nuclear, they'd be all over the place. Got to it's, just the fear, it's just the fear of that word and the public perception of it. I don't think it's, they're going to allow it. Uh, I mean, it, should be number one thing we're going to if you want to if you're serious about reducing a carbon footprint they they should be all over that because it's really the only way that it could displace fossil fuels right now in my opinion switching topics where do you see most organizations can improve and what about individuals Do do you see individuals maybe making mistakes or maybe bringing on the wrong approach to things where they might be more effective if they made a little change. What, what advice do you have for, for people and organizations today? I'll go back and talk about individuals first. When, like I said, in the, by the mid early nineties, I'd seen several cutbacks. You know, we talked about the business is up and down and when it's down, it gets way down and, they want to do buyouts and voluntary severances and early retirements, different incentives, and then layoffs if that doesn't work. And I've saw a lot of that over the years. And by the early 90s, I started seeing myself. I said, every time they'd even talk about that, everybody would get nervous and, and all out of sorts. And I've seen people couldn't sleep and do everything else from it. 
I decided way early on that I'm in charge of my own destiny. The best thing I can do, I've been working my equipment analyst job for some time. I said, the best thing I can do is learn as much about this and the equipment as I can to make myself so valuable to this company or some other company that they'd be crazy to lay me off. And that, that was a personal thing that I, I took in my mind and I tried to do. So I just buckled down and tried to be the best at what I did. And I told my sons this growing up, I don't care if you wash windows for a living or dump garbage or cut trees, I don't care, but try to be the best tree cutter there is or the best garbage jumper. And as long as you do that, and you like what you're doing, you'll succeed, and, and it, will, it doesn't matter how much money you make, that will come. But you gotta find something that you like doing. Don't, don't just get your eight to five to go home and, and say, I'm glad that day's over. You gotta do some sacrifice if you wanna get to that level and put in the extra time and put in the extra effort of instead of well, all my friends are doing this, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna be, looking at patterns. I'm going to be interpreting patterns and working late at night on, on this and trying to figure out what's wrong. And I did a lot of that. And one of the ways that got me to get to that next level was started participating in workshops and industry-related stuff. So I said, I'm, I'm, the company, my company knows my value now, but the world doesn't. So when I started participating in those conferences and things and, and getting involved with them. I was very, very shy growing up and could never think about standing up and give a presentation to a hundred people in a room for an hour talking about engines. People knew me back in high school was just amazed that I could, my mom said, how can you do that? You wouldn't even stand up and say your name <laughs> in high school. And it was, it was embarrassing for me to do that. But when I started getting comfortable with what I was talking about, I, I, I could do it for hours at a time. And I really enjoyed that. And that really opens it up to where, well, now this other company sees me for what I'm worth. If I lose my job here, mm-hmm. I got a shot to go over there. I so, think that's so important, Keith. I, I think this is something that many people don't realize about when they see someone like yourself or you know, some guy running a business or a CEO of an organization, they're up speaking and, and they're like, man, you know, they, they make that look easy. You know, they're, they're up there and they do a really good job. But what they don't realize is all that, like that speech is based on thousands of hours of preparation over many years of experience of, of even preparing just for that one talk, you know, exactly. it, it's, it's not like they just got up there and, and were winging it. You <laughs> yeah. Know? It's, it, it's, it's not comfortable. Uh, even, now to get up and talk to a large crowd. Uh, like I said, when I was chairman of the GMC, there was nearly 1,400 people in the room when I had to give an opening talk. And look, just looking around, holy crap. <laughs> but, <laughs> That's but, a big yeah, room. Uh, it, uh, it, it just started rolling out then and, and everything's fine. So you just gotta find your fears and, and, and face them and, and, and jump right in. Do you know Tim uh, Tebow? Uh, yeah. So he he has that famous news conference where he was he was becoming a jet, 
and he said I'm excited like a hundred different times. I don't know if you remember that news conference. He was just like, I'm excited. I'm so excited. I'm excited. I'm excited. And I love pointing to that when I think about nervousness when you get up to talk in front of people because that that uh, physical response of adrenaline is the same for nervousness as it is for excitement. It's no different. And so the perspective of how you approach when you feel that physical response, you talk to somebody who's going to get ready for the Super Bowl, and they're going to say, oh, man, I'm so excited, right? Yeah. And then you talk to somebody who's maybe a little nervous to go up and give a talk, like, oh, I'm so nervous. It's like, but it's, this, it's that same response. So it's, it's all about how you approach that endeavor. And I don't think anybody at any level – you might get a little more comfortable, but you're always going to have that nervousness before you get up for a talk or get in front of people like that. I think that yeah, you, excitement. You got to realize what you want to get out of, it and uh, you just got to go do it. Yeah. And uh, the message yeah. is more important than than how you feel yeah. about it. Exactly. We're getting to the end of our time here, Keith. I really appreciate you thinking about this whole podcast thing and technology these days. You never know if your great, great, great grandchildren someday might see this conversation, get to see their, their great, great grandpa out there. So I'm curious if you had any advice for multiple generations down the line, what would you want to leave them with today? Well, like I say, it's hard to believe that last year was a hundred years since my grandfather, my dad, myself, and now my son is has got in one year where he's he's working now. So hopefully get several years down the road with that. So it's going to be around. The energy system is, is the, the facilities are going to change. We we've done a lot to upgrade and replace some of the old vintage equipment since I started. A lot of that has been upgraded to different equipment, newer equipment, better burning, cleaner equipment than we had 50, 60, 80 years ago. We're constantly improving our equipment to stay in line with uh, the requirements that, that we have. And there's work going to be out there for several generations, I believe, in this gas business. Warren Buffett said just the other day when he bought Dominion Gas, he said, it's not going anywhere. We're going to be here for a while with the gas business. If Warren Buffett paid $10 billion for a gas company last week, you know, he's not doing that just because he's got money to spend. He, he does it very wisely and sees potential there. There's no reason that my grandkids and great-grandkids and great-great-grandkids couldn't work in this business for many years to come. There's going to be power needs all over this country. We're using more of it. We're using it more wisely than we did, but we're still using more of it all the time. And uh, it's a great business, and I've been thrilled to be a small part of it since the turn of the century when we first started putting pipes in the ground and compressing gas from one facility to the next. Well, Keith, I think many would agree with me. You've been a big part of it. I'm thrilled to have you on the show this week. I think your kindness, your hardworking attitude, your self-confidence, you're here to help. You're a kind man who approaches things with great work ethic. And I really have been thrilled to get to know you over the years. And I appreciate yep. you coming on the show today. Tell people where to find you. You're still doing the uh, Eastern Gas Compression Roundtable. What's going on with that? And uh, where can they find you? We did uh, have to cancel the EGCR, Eastern Gas Compression Roundtable, this year. But uh, we're looking forward to first week of May in Pittsburgh uh, 2021 Gas Machinery Conference. 
is canceled this year, but I'm on a, a planning committee for that. And we are doing that virtual this year. So I've got uh, an hour and a half presentation. I'll be doing virtual on that. The Gas Machinery Research Council Analyzer Workshop is also going to be done virtual this year. And I've got a hour presentation interpreting patterns and talking about engine analyst next month on that. Enjoy working with the PRCI. We do a lot of work with Kansas State, Colorado State, and Texas A&M universities. And working with those young upcoming engineers is really fun. And, and I've really enjoyed doing a lot of that. So we've had some good, good papers, good projects, and good discussions on some of that work too. So that's, that's been, been a lot of fun. Well, Keith, I sure do appreciate it. Go check out Keith. I know he's on LinkedIn. If you're going to any of those conferences, make sure you go shake Keith's hand, get to know him. Great guy, lots of experience, and a great person to know. I appreciate it, Keith. Thank you, Phil. Appreciate it. If you enjoyed today's show, give it a five-star rating. Follow, subscribe, and head on over to GoLeadEverything.com to learn more about the Go Lead Everything movement. For more great content daily, follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at RealPhilSwanson. Facebook and LinkedIn at Philip Swanson. And for videos of these episodes and other great video content daily, subscribe to the Phil Swanson channel on YouTube. Now go lead everything.